This evening we begin a new series looking at the book of Hebrews, so can I invite you to turn with me um, as we read together Hebrews chapter 1, which you'll find on page 1201 of your Pew Bibles, 1201 of the Pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not angel, all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And we end the reading at chapter 1. Last week, I was up in Ballycastle with a PCI team for the Isle Lammas Fair. If you have ever been to the Lammas Fair, you'll know that it's basically famous for two things, Dulce and Yellow Man. Well, one of the young guys who was on the team had never had Yellow Man before, and so he bought a bag and thought he would try a piece of it must have been a good five minutes after he put the piece into his mouth, he came up to me and said, what is this stuff? He said, I can't bite through it and it's just not dissolving in my mouth. I said, keep chewing on it eventually, we'll go away. But in some ways, that is how people can view the book of Hebrews. It's hard it's difficult to grasp. There's a lot of dense theology, and so maybe it's just better to avoid it completely. Well, we're beginning a new series in Hebrews tonight, 
And hopefully as we journey through this book together over the next few months, we'll all discover more about this book, more about ourselves, and more about God. But as always, as we come to God's word, we need his help. So let's pray before we go any further. Father, everything in the Bible is your word to us. And so it's important that we understand what it is saying. It's important that through the work of your Holy Spirit, we apply it to our lives. And so, Father, be with us now in this time. As we deal with some deep theology, as we only scratch the surface of it, Father, help us just to understand what is being said. Father, help us to see more of Jesus in this passage and then see what that means for each of our lives. And we pray it all in your name. Amen. We're not exactly sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but most scholars agree that it's likely to have been written around 40 years after the crucifixion of Christ. Those addressed were Jewish Christians who were struggling with the cost of their commitment to Christ. Being a Christian did not appear to bring any real advantage to them. In fact, it seemed to just mark them out for a fresh experience of suffering. The cost of following Christ meant public abuse from non-Christians, the loss of their property, their freedom, and perhaps even their lives. But in the book of Hebrews, we're shown how God's gracious purpose is to bring many sons and daughters to glory, thereby fulfilling his design for creation. And so it was fitting that he should make the pioneer of salvation perfect through what he suffered. The perfect son of God inaugurated the new covenant, his high priesthood better than the Levitical system, his once-for-all sacrifice superior to all those under the Mosaic covenant, because he's made atonement for sins of the people and won an eternal redemption. The purpose of God's earlier revelation in the Old Testament was to anticipate and point to all the blessings that Jesus had brought. A summary of the book of Hebrews and where we're heading for the next few months. But let me summarize the book of Hebrews even further. Jesus is utterly supreme. That's what the book of Hebrews is about, Jesus being utterly supreme. And so we're encouraged, and the writer of this book is encouraging those who are reading it that as followers of God, we should stick with him along whatever happens. And so as we come to chapter one this evening, we begin by thinking about Jesus It's what the book's about, and it's what this chapter is about. And we're going to think about four things. Jesus and Scripture, Jesus and the universe, Jesus and God the Father, and then Jesus and us. So firstly then, Jesus and Scripture. And from the very first verse of this chapter, we can see Jesus' unique relationship. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. How do we get to know God? 
Well, the answer is, of course, we can't. Because how can we who are finite ever grasp what is infinite that is God? So the only way that is possible for us to get to know God is if God makes a move on his side. And that's exactly what the Bible claims to have happened. Our writer says God spoke in a variety of ways. Visions, dreams, words, writing, deeds, declarations. Throughout a long historical process, God added to his truth bit by bit, unfolding more and more of his nature, his purposes, his character. And the people he primarily chose to speak through were called prophets. And all of this was to go on until God would do what he had never done before, would ever do again, that he would become one of us. And the writer of Hebrews says that this has happened, that Jesus has come. The writer says that Jesus is God's son, and this is how God is speaking to us. Imagine it a bit like this, that you discover you have a long-lost relative who lives on the far side of the world. They make initial contact to you by sending you an email or writing you a letter. They tell you something about themselves, who they are, their likes, their dislikes, their background, their home, something about their character maybe. Then the next contact you have is they phone you or they Skype you and you get to hear what they sound like. It makes that relationship a little more meaningful, a little deeper. Listening to their voice makes the contact more intimate. But finally, that day comes. Whenever this person who has been writing to you, emailing to you, talking to you on the phone, whenever their plane lands at the airport and you meet them face to face, then the communication is total. And that's exactly what the writer is claiming has happened between mankind and God in Jesus. That's why there's no need for further revelation from God, for he has nothing further to say to us than what he has already said through his son. Indeed, in relation to both the revelation of God through the prophets and the son, the writer says, has spoken. There is no more revelation to be had. And so the writer wants us to understand if you really want to know what God thinks, if you really want to know what God is like, what his purposes are for the world, why he has made us, what our place is within this world, then it must be to Jesus we turn. And so it must be to the Bible that we turn. And when we turn to the Bible, we see that the Old Testament looks forward to Christ. It prepares the way for him. It gives us pictures, images, categories that we can identify, that we can understand who this Jesus is. Hebrews says that Christ has a unique relationship to Scripture because it's all about him. God has spoken through the prophets. We have the Old Testament, but now we have God in Christ. And then in chapter one, as he's going to do at the end of the chapter, 
we get all the contrast between Jesus and the angels. And the writer uses verses from throughout the Old Testament to show how Jesus is greater than the angels. And look at what verse 5 says. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. The writer wants to make it clear, wants us to understand from this chapter that we cannot get confused. That there is a huge difference between Christ and the angels, a huge difference between Jesus and the angels. Look at what the verse says, God has now spoken through his son. And then what does verse 5 say? Who has God called his son? None of the angels, it's Christ only. Jesus cannot be confused with angels, and angels cannot be confused with Jesus. Only Jesus is the Son of God. Only Jesus has been called Son by the Father. Only Jesus has this unique relationship with Scripture. And then secondly, Jesus has a unique relationship with the universe. Look through those first few verses and see what we're told about Christ's relationship with the universe. He is the Son whom God appointed heir of all things. We're told that through him he made the universe, and we're told that Christ is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the Son whom God appointed heir of all things. Heir of all things. The whole world, the whole universe is for Jesus. He is heir of all things. We have an heir to the throne in this country, Prince Charles, and he has been waiting for his inheritance. He's been waiting a long time for his inheritance, and maybe he thinks it's not worth it anymore now. But what about Christ's inheritance? Mountains, seas, skies, moon, stars, animals, universes, men, women, his people, all for Jesus, heir of all things. That is who we gather together this evening to worship that is why we come into this place. That is why the writer to Hebrews is spending this chapter making us, helping us see what is going on, that this is Christ. There is no one greater. And so what this should do is it should cause us to have only one response, and that is worship. But then think about it. If Christ is the heir of all things, that means there'll be no escaping Jesus. Because if he is inheriting all things, he will be there. But then we go on through whom he made the universe. Jesus is also the agent of creation. And so everything is not just for Jesus, but everything has been made through Jesus. 
And not only did he create it, but then the writer goes on and tells us that he sustains all things by his powerful word. Jesus sustains the world by speaking. The one who told the storm to be still, the one who healed with a word, he sustains the universe by his powerful word. If Jesus stopped doing that, we would stop. This whole world would stop. Jesus is guiding, weaving, sustaining everything towards an ultimate goal. And that goal is, in fact, Christ. And so the universe comes from Christ in the past, is moving towards Christ in the future, and is being upheld by Christ now in the present. This is Christ. And again, the writer says, you cannot confuse Jesus with the angels. Look at verses 7 and 8. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The angels are servants, but Christ, he is the one who will reign forever and ever. And then on in verse 10. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed. Look at the picture we're given here. It's like you've got home at the end of the day. You take your pair of trousers off, you scrumple them up into a ball, you throw them into a corner. Hopefully you'll remember to wash them at some point in the next week or so. But it doesn't require much effort. Wear out like a garment, and Christ will roll them up like a robe. Of course it doesn't for the one who created it, for the one who sustains it, for the one who will inherit it all. Christ and the Scriptures, Christ and the universe, and thirdly, Christ and God the Father. Verse 3, we're told the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What this verse is saying is, if we've seen the sun, we have seen the Father. That Jesus is the exact representation of God. This is not like a human father-son relationship. Sons can have some of the likenesses, some of the characteristics of their fathers, but you cannot say that if you have met someone's son, that you have met their father. But with God, knowing the son is knowing the father. There's nothing hidden about God that has not been made known in Christ. We are able to know God because we know the Son. 
And you see, whenever we grasp what this means, it can really challenge our, our opinion and our thoughts on what we think of God and of what we think of Jesus. Because for some of us, we may want to think of God as the angry God from the Old Testament, but Jesus, well, he's the kind one from the New Testament. But whenever we grasp what this means, it's telling us that in Jesus, we see someone who is tender with the brokenhearted. Well, then so is the Father. Jesus, someone who is completely in control over nature, so is the Father. In Jesus, we see someone who hates sin and all that corrupts, and he's determined to do something about it. Well, so is the Father. And so we're not to play one off against the other, as if God the Father is a bullying God and Jesus is the kind God. They are distinct and yet one in their divine character. Jesus is co-eternal with God. Never was there a time when the Father existed without the Son. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his Son. Look again at verse 5. We cannot confuse Jesus with the angels. For only he has been told, you are my son, today I have become your father. Only Christ has been told, I will be his father and he will be my son. Has that ever been said of the angels? Absolutely not. So for all of us, it reminds us that if we're looking for God, we need to look for him in Christ. Christ, the exact representation of the Father. And then fourthly, Jesus and his relationship with men and women, his relationship with us. See, Jesus came not only to be somebody unique, but to do something unique. The writer doesn't tell us that Jesus came to teach us about goodness, but we're told that he came to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This verse speaks of the Son's great work, a final work, a finished work. He sits down at the end to show that it's complete. Jesus' work of providing purification for sin is over because he sits down. Throughout the Old Testament, there were many sacrifices repeated again and again and again and again, but Christ's was once and was final. The Jewish priests were kept standing because they were forever having to offer sacrifices for sin. Jesus has now sat down, having finished his work of offering a sacrifice for sin once and for all. And later on in our service, we're going to be remembering that and remembering what that means as we gather around the table for communion. But because of Christ's sacrifice, he's been elevated to the position of rule and authority on the very throne of heaven. 
What does that mean for you and me this evening? To know that at the heart of the universe rules a man who loved us so much that he died for us. To know that Christ is on the throne, the one who gave his blood to bring forgiveness, the one who has our best interests at heart, the one who, when we follow him, will bring us safely to himself. Only Christ has this unique relationship with us to restore us to God. And again, contrast this with the angels. Verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That is what's happening. Christ's work is completed and God is going to make Christ's enemies a footstool. That day is coming. See, only Christ is seated and waiting until God makes sin, death, and Satan his footstool when they're defeated once for all. So why then all this talk about angels? Why couldn't this chapter have just ended at verse 4? Well, the writer has given us a long list of Old Testament quotations to back up this point that he has been hammering home throughout the chapter. Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is even greater than the highest spiritual beings you can think of. And so we can understand then what the writer is doing. He's getting his readers He's getting us to focus our thoughts completely upon Christ. He doesn't want us to be distracted by thinking about these angels. Who are these beings? Well, they're nothing compared to Christ. They're his servants. But maybe you think, what does this have to do with me anyhow? I know there's maybe some people get distracted by angels, but that's not me. Well, this chapter warns us that one of the constant dangers is that we take our eyes off Jesus. One of the constant dangers of being a follower of Christ is that we allow someone or something else to take his place. And look with me at the first verse of chapter 2. We've been told in chapter 1 everything about Christ. And then the very first verse of chapter 2 says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. How many people do you think wake up one morning and say, Christianity can't just be bothered with it today. Well, it's very few, if maybe none at all. See, for most people, drift happens in a slow and gradual process. The job takes over, the home takes over, the family takes over, takes over the place that only Christ should have. 
In the midst of difficult times, people say, what is the point in going on? Because they've stopped having Christ in the place that only he should be. It all comes down to when we forget Christ, when we forget who he is, when we forget what he has done for us. And so the writer to the Hebrews is writing to these group of Christian Jews and saying, you're having a difficult time. It's a difficult situation, but this is Jesus. This is Jesus, the only one who has this relationship with Scripture, the only one who has this relationship with the universe, the only one who has this relationship with the Father, the only one who has this relationship with you and with me. So maybe you've read chapter 1. Maybe you read it this afternoon or in the past week. Maybe as we were reading it together, you thought, what is this going on about? That this is a lot of deep theology. There's a lot of stuff being talked about here. What does this actually have to do with me? Well, the writer warns that we need to pay careful attention to what we have heard. These people were drifting away, and so right at the start, he wants to remind them. He wants to uphold Christ before them, and he wants to drive them to worship. I'm excited about this study. I'm excited about the weeks and months that we have ahead in this book. It's going to be challenging. There's going to be some things that we all wrestle and struggle with. There's going to be some real deep issues that are being thrown out here. But right from the start, the writer is setting out his purpose. It's to focus us on Christ. It's to remind us who Christ is. He wants us to have a bigger picture of Christ. C.S. Lewis portrayed the growing Christian's experience of an ever-enlarging Christ in his Chronicles of Narnia. Lucy, caught up in her spiritual quest, saw the lion Aslan shining white and huge in the moonlight. In a burst of emotion, Lucy rushed towards him, burying her face in the rich silkiness of his mane. Whereupon the great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath was all her wound here. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not, Aslan replied. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. May it be each of our prayers that as we begin this study, that we will grow and find a bigger Christ as we study Hebrews together. Let's pray. And so, Father, may that be the prayer of each of our hearts.
that as we study your word, may we see a bigger Christ and see what that means in our lives. And to you be all the glory we pray. Amen. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all both now and forevermore. Amen.